We're going to be uh, jumping back into our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we took a couple weeks off for uh, Palm Sunday and for Easter, but for those of you that may be a little bit newer, uh, we have been studying the Sermon on the Mount. We started with the Beatitudes way back in the fall, and we've been working our way through Jesus' sermon, uh, and we will continue to do so for most of this year. And uh, this morning, we're going to be in verses 27 through 30. Now, if you're looking in the, in the bulletin, it probably has the reading going and in, in including verses 31 and 32. But the more I got into my study on this this week, the more I thought I was just trying to bite off more than I needed to, and I was going to rush it. So we're just going to look this morning at verses 27 through 30. Before we read Scripture, though, here's a question that I'd like to pose. When you think about the sin in your life, when you think about the areas of your life where you don't live the way you know you should live, or you know that, that God has called you to uh, a, a different way of life, and yet you, you purposely go the other direction, or you just blow it, you just make a mistake. What's at the root of that struggle? What's at the, at the root of that problem? Another way to say it would be, what's the one common denominator? Uh, perhaps you, you know, can say, well, gosh, for us, uh, you know, for me, maybe sometimes it's my kids. And they just kind of know how to push all the buttons, and, and they're kind of the common denominator because my big sin is losing my temper. Uh, or you may say, you know, when I get in a lot of traffic, I just really get frustrated and, and angry because people just don't know how to drive. And, you know, the, that's, the, that's the common denominator. Let me respectfully and somewhat gently suggest that that probably is not the right way to look at it. By pinpointing the issues in my life that are sinful— by suggesting that they're brought on by other people or they're brought on by circumstances beyond my control probably contains some parcel of truth, but it sure lets me off the hook very easily, doesn't it? It, it makes my sin your problem because if you hadn't done what you did, then I wouldn't have sinned. And I would argue, and I think this passage of Scripture argues, that the one common denominator is you. <laughs> the one common denominator is me. I remember a friend... Uh, probably 10 years ago or so, say, if I could just get out of this marriage and get in another marriage, I, I know that I could find happiness. I said, well, the only problem with your reasoning is you have to take you to that marriage, and I think that's problematic. You might want to rethink how you're looking at this. You're assuming that the other person is at fault, and you're not. D.L. Moody, who is one of the probably greatest preachers of all time, not just his generation, but of all time, a man of God, a man who you would look at and go, if anybody got it right, he got it right. Here's what Moody says along these lines. I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than with any man I know. The man I see in the mirror each morning is my greatest impediment to holiness and godliness. And then he almost kind of starts coaching himself. Stop saying the devil made me do it. When you get up in the morning and look in the mirror to shave, you are looking at your worst problem. Because blood-bought, heaven-bound men still contend daily with the old sin nature inherited from Adam. I love the fact that Moody says you can be a follower of Jesus, you can be a disciple of Jesus, and still be befuddled by the sin in your life. Because that's absolutely true. Granted, he goes on to say, sin no longer has the right to reign as our master, because of our co-crucifixion and co-resurrection, and I just put parenthetically there with Christ to make sure we founded it in Jesus, which is what he's saying. Because our uh, co-crucifixion, co-resurrection, but it can still rear its ugly head. 
Moody said, you want to know the biggest problem with me? It's me. And so this morning, I want to look at this passage of Scripture under the heading of the self-destructive power of self-obsession. We're going to be looking at one particular topic in that area. There are others, but this one's going to hone in on the fact that when we, when we make it all about us is when we really begin to get in trouble. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, hear the word of God. <clears throat> you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, the truth of your word. We thank you that you give us your message not to uh, oppress us, not to uh, cause us shame, or in any way to harm us. You give us your word because it is the word of life. It is the only word of life. It is the truth. It's not some truth or filled with some truth. It is truth. And you give it to us because you love us, because you want what's best for us. And yet, Father, sometimes the subject matter of your word is, is, is pretty intense and can be pretty gritty, and this morning is one of those times. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't flinch. I pray, Lord, that we would honestly evaluate not the person to our right or the person to our left, but our own hearts, and that your word and your spirit would do that work in us and for us. Father, you want us to be modeled in the image of Jesus. That's part of the reason why you sent him, so that he could be transforming us. And we certainly need that in all areas of life. But, but in this one in particular, in our day, in our society, it, it certainly stands out as, a, as an important need in the church to address this with wisdom and with care. And so we pray for that. Lord, not, we're not interested in my opinions. We're not interested in, in anything I've figured out, Lord. This is about your word. So we pray that you would come and you would teach us. I pray that you would forgive my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to know. Lord Jesus, we pray that we could come and we could sit at your feet. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, let me just say right off the bat, moms and dads, uh, after the service this morning, you may need to, to uh, do a little bit of follow-up on this particular topic. Uh, I have prepared this in mind with the fact that we always uh, welcome and, in fact, encourage our families to come and to worship together. Uh, but this is a text that, that needs to be covered, but I want you to know I'm doing uh, my very dead-level best to be sensitive to the uh, entire congregation on this topic. Uh, that being said, I think it is safe to say that not this sin alone, but this sin in particular, sexual sin, and I'll at least speak for, for men, but, but I think maybe perhaps it's true for women as well, can grab us by the throat and literally threatens to choke the spiritual life out of us. It attempts to rob us of the joy that we have in Christ and leave us a wretched mass 
of guilt and shame to the point that we can even despair of our salvation. I've heard men say, and I've actually had this thought go through my mind from time to time, because I wrestle with this temptation and I fall short and I, and I don't live up to what Jesus is saying here, I don't even feel like I'm a Christian. How could a Christian think this way? Knowing what Jesus says here, how, how, how could I not get on top of this and conquer this? To the point where this particular sin puts such strain on our faith that we may be even tempted to walk away from Christ. There's more guilt, there's more anxiety, there's more angst, there's more despair, I think, over this sin than just about any other sin that we commit. And it doesn't have to be that way. I had a friend years ago, and I'm going back a long time now, probably 16, 17, 18 years ago, who said, uh, I've met the woman of my dreams. And I said, well, I would... I want to say that's great, but you've been married for 10 years, and I thought you already knew her. He said, no, 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 I've met another woman, and this is the woman that can really make me happy. And so we talked about that, and we talked about um, what God's uh, plan was for our lives, to be with the same spouse, to, uh, to work on our differences, to, to strive to have a godly marriage, for husbands to work on the things that they need to work on, and wives to work on the things they need to work on, and be empowered by God's Spirit and God's Word to stay faithful to one another all our lives. But he just couldn't get there, and he literally quit Jesus. He said, if that's what it means, then so be it, because I, I want this. This is for me. This is not the first time that that's happened in the history of the Christian faith, and it certainly wasn't the last time and won't be the last time. That's how powerful this sin is. What is the help that's offered to us? How do we go about addressing this issue? Well, it's very clear here. It's very, we sh- we're going to be done in about 30 seconds. Pluck out your eyes and cut off your hands. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. All right? <laughs> Clearly, Jesus is speaking metaphorically. Because if he wasn't, the next day or within the next week, he would have had to say to all of his disciples, why are you guys still walking around with eyeballs and with hands? Because all of you have committed this sin in the last week. There's something that Jesus is saying that's much deeper and much more profound that actually can give us hope as we think about this particular sin. I want to give you three observations out of this text this morning. And the first one is this. Jesus leaves no room for self-righteous technicalities. Jesus leaves no room for self-righteous technicalities. Look at verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, and then he quotes the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, Jesus is not finding fault with the seventh commandment. Jesus is the author of the seventh commandment. Jesus is not saying that, that there's something inadequate about it. He's saying you've put it in a box and you so controlled it that now you are limiting what God intends it to be. And by the way, if you want to stay in the commandments, you're ignoring the tenth commandment, which is honor God with your brain. You shall not covet. That's think about, right? That's emotionally attach yourself to something that isn't yours as if you deserve it. And one of the things in that list is your neighbor's wife. So Jesus isn't saying there's something wrong with the commandment. He's attacking our proclivity to define the law in the narrowest terms possible so we can claim self-propelled righteousness, so that we can take credit for obedience that we're not doing. It goes something like this. I didn't sin. I just thought about it. (laughs) 
I didn't actually commit that sin. And we don't have to limit it to sexual sin. We say, you know, I thought about gossiping about this person all day because I'm really mad at him, but I didn't do it, so I'm okay because I didn't sin. It's not just about adultery. You can, you can fill in that blank in other ways, but we're talking about marital unfaithfulness here. We're talking about sexual unfaithfulness here. So in that point, we say, well, I, I thought about it, and there's lots of ways in our culture today to think about it. We don't even have to go down that road. There's tons of them. And to say that as long as I, as long as I came right up to that line and stopped there, then I didn't commit the sin. We had, we had a, a child that lived this way uh, in her mind and in her attitude. I, you've heard lots of stories about Katie if you've been here for a while. But Katie was the kind of child that if I said to Katie, Katie, don't pick up this Bible, and you know, this, I'm studying my Bible, don't pick it up, Katie would come over, and she'd lean on the desk, and she'd put her hands on the Bible. And she kind of blocked my view of the Bible, and she kind of tapped on the Bible. And I would say, Katie, I told you not to touch that Bible. And she would say, no, you didn't. You told me not to pick it up. And I always obey you, Dad. I'm not picking up your Bible. All right? That's just how she looked at the world. Is that what we say to our Father? Father, I, I'm not participating in sexual sin. I haven't crossed the line. Thought about it all day. I don't control where my eyes go. I don't control the thoughts that go through my mind. I don't, I don't keep myself from, from, from exposing myself to those evil things. I go right up to it, but I've never laid a hand on another person. Is that the message we want to give God? And he's saying to us, children, children, you're basing your life on a technicality. You're ignoring the truth. You see, objectifying someone sexually in my mind is a sin. Why? Mental infidelity, Jesus says, is adultery. Why? Because it dishonors how God created us for one another as husband and wife. Here's what uh, Kent Hughes said. I love this quote. I actually should have put it on this. Oh, I did. I did put it on the screen. Boy, I'm so good. Uh, I forgot that I put that on there. It's been a couple days since I looked at that. No sensual sin was ever committed that was not first imagined. In other words, what, what Hughes has picked up on is what Jesus is saying to us this morning is, you have a heart problem. This is not a behavioral issue. It, it, it can grow into that, but it, it gives birth out of our minds. I'm going to read for you a couple verses. I'm not going to put them on the screen, but in Matthew chapter 15, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down and look at it later. Matthew 15, verses 18 through 20, Jesus is having a very similar conversation, and he says this, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart... And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So again, it's broader than just the sexual sin, but they're certainly mentioned here. So you, if you're going to steal from someone, you're going to think about it before you do it. If you're going to commit adultery, you didn't just wake up one morning, walk out the door, and, oh, it accidentally happened. There's actually thinking that goes on in your mind and your heart that moves you into that activity. So Jesus says, we're not going to live on a technicality. We're not going to walk right up to the edge and say we're being obedient. When we do that, we're actually, Jesus says, we're being rebellious. I say to you, everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But Jesus goes on not just to, to leave no room for self-righteous technicalities. He also pinpoints in this passage our self-obsession. I want to come back to verse 28 for just a moment. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Why is lust 
harmful, the, 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 the sexual thinking, the inappropriate sexual thinking. How can mere thoughts be so egregious? It's because lust is the opposite of love. Love gives, one, gives myself to someone else in service to them, in care for them, in compassion to them. So I love a friend, and, and, and they had a, a fire at their house. So what I do, I go and I help them. I go help them try to go through the, the debris and pull out things. Or we, we love a, a friend who's, who's not feeling well sick. We go and visit them in the hospital. Love expresses itself a lot of different ways, but it's always me giving to someone else. Lust is using someone for my pleasure and my gratification. And again, whether it's sexual or any other type of sin, we're going to actually be creating a me-first mentality in the way we live. It's going to be about me. I want to get what I want. This person can satisfy me in some way, so I'm going to use them. That's hateful towards God, and it's certainly harmful to other people, not just me. Do we really want to live our lives in a way that says, I want what I want when I want it, and I'll do whatever that is? Is that really what we think following Jesus is all about? Have you ever noticed how, how song lyrics, you can say stuff in songs, you could never walk up to somebody and say, have you ever noticed that? I'm going to go back all the way to the, to the 1980s, so everybody that's like 30 years old and younger can kind of clock out for just a couple minutes. Or actually, you could think of songs in your generation that would fit this, but in the 80s there was a guy named, I, I think he was first, he was John Cougar, and then he was John Cougar Mellencamp, and now he's just, I think he, now he's just John Mellencamp. Uh, singer out of, out of uh, Indiana, and he was a great rock and roll guy, and he had really great tunes. And he has this one song where I actually timed it, not that it's on my iPod or anything like that, but, um, I, okay, it is. I actually timed it one time, and the instrumental lick at the beginning of the, of the song goes for two and a half minutes before any lyric is sung. And I mean, you're rocking out, you're jamming, it's great if you're pushing a lawnmower, it gives you a lot of energy. And then he starts to sing. And he sings words you can never walk up to anybody in your life and say. He starts to sing and he says, I need a lover that won't drive me crazy. I need a lover that won't drive me crazy. I need a lover that won't drive me crazy. I need a girl who knows the meaning of, hey, hit the highway. Now, how many dads in this room that have daughters hope that guy comes up to your front door and rings the doorbell to take your daughter out on a date? I actually do because I own a shotgun. I'd like to see him in my front door. Is, is that the guy you're, you're hoping comes? If, if I had a high school student ring the doorbell and say, Mr. Ricks, I'm here for Katie when she was in high school, and by the way, I'm just going to kind of use her up tonight, and I can't even bring her back. You can go pick her up. She'll be at this, this motel over on the other side of town. He wouldn't live to get off my front porch. I would choke the life out of him, and then I would spend the rest of my life in prison. I told every guy that ever dated Katie, as long as you know I don't mind going to jail the rest of my life, you and I will always be good. Right? Of course not. Well, then why do I tolerate that kind of thinking in my own mind? Why do I let my heart go to those kind of places where I might not ever do it, I might never act on it, but in my heart and in my soul, I objectify someone to that point. I need somebody that knows the term of, when I'm done with you, hey, hit the highway. You see, Jesus is pinpointing our self-obsession. And he's saying the gospel is something radically different. God's grace comes at a price that's radically steeper. And Jesus didn't go to the cross so he could feel good about himself. Jesus didn't go to the cross because it was delightful and, and it was just something that he couldn't wait to do. Jesus went to the cross and paid the price because that's love. And that's what we're called to. 
well, what is the solution? How do we, how do we take these next couple of verses? If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, throw it away. It's better for you to go into, into heaven maimed, so to speak, than, than to go into hell. Or, or take your right hand if it offends you and cut it off. It, it's better that you lose your hand and still uh, get into heaven instead of hell. How do we apply that? Because Jesus certainly is speaking metaphorically. Plucking eyes and removing hands is a behavior that stems from the heart and the mind. And Jesus is not suggesting a physical answer to a spiritual problem. Rather, he's wanting to get our attention. This is not the only time. Jesus, two or three other times in the gospel, uses this kind of language. Hey, if, you're, if your eyes are messing you up, pluck them out. It would be better to be, be blind. He says this three or four other places in the gospels. He's using this kind of language because it gets your attention. Nobody skips past these verses. I can't tell you how many people have asked me, Pastor, what does it mean when Jesus says to pluck out your eyes? I, I very rarely have somebody say, Pastor, what does it exactly mean for me to love my neighbor? That's pretty straightforward. But this one causes a lot of angst, and that's the intention. Jesus says it to us, so we will sit up and take notice. But how do we apply this? How does Jesus want us to, to wrestle with this issue. I believe that he's challenging our smugness, and I believe he's also challenging our misplaced confidence. If I'm just talking to men for a couple minutes, I'm sure that, that there, almost every man in here over the age of 13 or 14 who's wrestled with this sin and has failed has said, I'll do better next time. I'll work harder on this. I'll, I'll try more. And we have, we have not put our eyes on Jesus and started there, but rather we've, we've started with our own strength and our own wisdom, and it's only a matter of time. We may have been great at it for a week or a month or maybe even a year, but eventually we failed again. How do we apply this? Well, I think it's a, it's a two-step kind of dance, and, I, and I'm going to give you uh, something that I've actually created as I've thought about this in my own life. You're welcome to use it. You're welcome to throw it away if, it, if it's not helpful at all, but I believe it's an appropriate application of what Jesus is saying here. I think the first thing Jesus is saying here is, is you, need to, you need to run away. <laughs> you need to get away from those things that cause these kind of thoughts to go through your mind. And then the second part is you need to replace them with something else. And I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's both of them. Let me go down a side road for a second and, and, and say if you want to study a passage of Scripture on this, I would go to Genesis chapter 39, which is a story of a guy named Joseph who has been sold into slavery by his brothers. But because God is with him and because he's got a sharp mind, he was sold to a high-ranking official in the government, and he's worked his way up, and he runs the guy's household. He runs his bank accounts. He runs all of his business deals. He's in charge of this man's life. Basically, he's, he's the chief financial officer, the chief communication officer. He's the CFL, CEO, CE, everything in this guy's household, in a very wealthy Egyptian household. And he's a good-looking young guy, and, and the guy, his boss, whose name is Potiphar, his wife, tries to seduce Joseph. And in chapter 39 of Genesis, she comes after him two or three different times. And the last time she comes after him, she literally grabs him and is trying to drag him into the room with her. And he pulls away so hard, he literally rips his, I guess it was like a toga, literally rips it off and runs out of the house naked. He runs away. He violently runs away. I mean, anybody that would leave their clothes and torn in somebody else's hands wants to get out of there as fast as they possibly can. Run away. But then there's the, the notion of replacing, and if you read that passage carefully, as she's trying to talk him into this, this little rendezvous, he says, you know what, ma'am, with all due respect, your husband, 
has put me over every part of this house. There's nothing that isn't at my complete disposal. I, I have a full run of the house. He trusts me completely. He says, why then would I, and you think what's coming next, if you've never read the story before, you think the next thing out of his mouth is going to be, why would I abuse his trust like that? That's not what he says. He says, why would I commit such an egregious sin against God? In other words, he's not looking at, at what's best for him, what's easiest for him. He's saying, what has my God called me to? I need to replace my thinking with God's thinking. And how could I offend God who has cared for me in this way? So I'm going to give you some thoughts on how I apply this to my life. And they've been on the screen already for a couple of minutes. You probably have kind of thought through them. For me personally, it's, it starts with an honest appraisal. It starts with me saying, this is me. This is not a passage for somebody else. If you think pastors don't struggle with this because they're pastors, that would be like saying that, that married people don't struggle with it because they're married and only single people struggle with it. And the facts are, single people struggle with this terribly, I'm quite certain, and married people do too. It's hard for all of us. But the facts are, we have to realize, as, as Moody said, Moody, your biggest problem is Moody. And I need to say, Rick's, your biggest problem is Rick's. It's not your circumstances. It's not that the internet is so accessible. It's not that, you know, whatever, this or that. It's not, it's me. And it has to start there. That's, that's, that's the kind of the runaway part. I've got to realize that I can't blame anybody else. But that also leads me then to what? To cry to help to the Lord. Say, Father, every day I need you in this. Every day I need you to be part of my life. I need you to, you know my mind. You know how quickly it can wander. You know that my eyes can go where they're not supposed to. You know my hands can do things they ought not do. You need to protect me. I need your protection. I need your care. And I entrust myself to you. That's running and it's replacing it with something else. But then I, a couple of practical safeguards, and one I call location, location, location. What, what do I mean by that? Well, I'll give you an example of, of just a parenting decision that we made in, in our house. Uh, the computers were not in children's bedrooms. The computers weren't in our bedrooms. They were in a, uh, the one computer we have is in the sunroom, which is a room that you can see if you're standing on any side of our house, you can see the sunroom. If you're in the house, it's right off the kitchen, and boys are either in the kitchen or watching TV, so we know that we, it's in a public place. There's nothing that says that my kids deserve the right to have a computer in their room by themselves any more than that there's something that says I should hand an eight-year-old a loaded gun and tell them to go play. They're both equally as destructive. And so location, what am I going to do to safeguard myself? What, what are obvious things I know I can avoid in order to keep my eyes going in the right direction instead of the wrong direction? And how can I pass that on to my children as well. If you've ever come to talk to me about an issue you've had in your life and you're a woman, you know that you've never talked to me alone in a restaurant. You've never talked to me any place other than my office at Green Tree Community Church, and you've never come there in the evening when there isn't anybody else in the office. I've made that mistake maybe a couple of times in the last five or six years when I, and I caught myself and realized I'm sitting here, and, and it happened to be a person that came in and sat down. I'm like, I, nothing against the other person, but I got to get out of here. This is wrong. I'm not supposed to do this. I need to protect my relationship with my wife and cherish it. So if you're a woman and you, you're struggling with some things, you think talking to a pastor is helpful, I'm there. Absolutely. But we come in my office, and there are all, the, all the doors in Green Tree have glass on the windows. And if I forget to pull the shade up, my assistant will pull the shade up, and the door's never locked. Anybody can walk in at any moment. Why? Because I don't trust Tom Ricks. It's got nothing to do with the other person. I know how quickly I can fall. So I'm not going to put myself in a location 
where I can hurt myself. But it's not just missing out the places that, are, that could be a problem. It's also, what, what are you going to do instead? Well, what I hope to do instead and what I try to do instead every day is affirm my wife and my relationship with her. And, and I still court her and I still date her. I couldn't go on a date with Cindy last night. You know why? She had prom. Think about that. How, how about that? My wife works at Kirkwood High School. I couldn't go on a date with her because she had to go to prom. And she comes walking down the stairs to go to prom, and, and, and she, I wanted to go on a date with her. She, dressed, she cleaned up real nice. She looked really good. And I'm like, I tell you, the kids could take care of themselves. How about, you know, you and I go have a nice time, right? I was, you know, I was kind of disappointed I didn't have a date with her last night. And at least four, if not five or six days a week, I pray with her. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't sit down and we have a long thou shalt pray for hours. But every morning before we go out the door, if we're going out at the same time, and it's usually somewhere between four and five times a week, I just grab her and I hug her and I pray for her for 30 seconds. It's about that long. But you know what it reminds me of? She's the one. And it's not like I feel bad about that. And it's not like God's given me something that, that is broken or flawed or, or isn't any good. God's given me a tremendous gift. You go back to Genesis 3 and you read, or excuse me, Genesis 2, and, and God puts Adam to sleep and then he, he, he takes the rib and he makes Eve, right? And then Adam wakes up. I think we, maybe we've mentioned this before a, year, a couple years ago. We're going through Genesis. And Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man, right? And you read that in the Bible and it's pretty sterile in the English. But in the Hebrew, that's actually Adam saying, wow, how cool is this? This is Adam like, Lord, I know you want to walk in the garden in the cool of the day, but I'm busy today. <laughs> Thank you so much. I will see you later. You know, you've done what you've, you've set out to do. Eve and I need to have a little bit of time together. He's excited. He is physically aroused. I don't want to be inappropriate here, but he's excited about what he sees. It's a good gift. It's a glorious gift. Sometimes I forget that. Sometimes I, I take my eyes off of that. Why in heaven's name, would I want to replace that with something that lasts but a moment and then makes me feel guilty and awful and shameful for who knows how much time I'm going to try to stay away from that and replace it with something good. And then the last one is simply avoiding isolation, saying, I, I don't do this on my own. You and I were called to an individual relationship with Jesus, but we we're also called to a community of believers. And when we, everybody knows this who's a disciple of Jesus in this room. When you get in a sin pattern in your life, and again, it doesn't matter what it is, gossip, whether it's sexuality, gossip, anger, whatever it is, doesn't matter. You know that when you're in that moment where you're not quite ready to repent and you're fighting it and you don't quite want to let it go, the last thing you want to do is see another brother or sister in Christ who's going to say, hey, how's that going for you? How's that working out? Is it going, it's going all right for you? The last person you want to talk to is God. You want to be left alone. You want to be isolated. Why? Because that's the nature of sin. Sin separates. Sin puts us on our own. And Satan says, this is going to be so good. Go do it. And we go do it. And then Satan goes, man, you're terrible. You're probably not even a Christian. And by the way, look around you. There's nobody here to help. And it eats our lunch. And we get broken because of that. Wouldn't a better notion be to replace that with honest friendships? with people with whom I can be very honest and very real and people that can do the same with me. Uh, I have Monday morning Bible study guys are not meeting right now because a lot of us are in Thursday morning group, but I have this Monday morning Bible study for years. And I tell, I've told those guys for years, my day off is Friday. My wife's day off is not Friday. If, it, you know, if it's ever on your mind on Friday morning, call me and ask me what I'm doing <laughs> and ask me honestly what I'm doing. 
and make me give you an honest answer. Tom Ricks can fall just as quickly as anybody else can. We need to, to run away from isolation and to relationship one another. Why? Because what Jesus is saying here is that there's something much better. And that's what we need to get. If all we see here is a negative message, we're going to miss it. Jesus is saying there's much better here. Unfaithfulness will, will, will kill you. It'll kill you emotionally. It'll, it'll do great harm to your human relationships. But faithfulness wins the day. So whether you're single and you struggle with this or whether you're married and you struggle with this, remember that it was the faithfulness of Jesus that has won your salvation. And it is the faithfulness of Jesus that holds your salvation. You cannot out the grace of Jesus. And so as we look at this passage, we must see the life that Jesus is trying to give us. Don't allow yourself off on a technicality. Don't ignore the fact that you can tend to be self-obsessed and draw near to me and allow me to grow within you a heart and a passion that loves the heart and passion of Jesus and sees his glory and sees his majesty even in the midst of a struggle with which we're confronted on a daily basis. Will you pray with me? Father, this is, this is not a simple topic. It's not an easy topic. And it is something with which many of us wrestle pretty regularly. So, Lord, I pray that your word would really do its work in our, in our hearts today. There's no magic wand. We, you know, Moody said, heaven-bound men will struggle with sin until they die, and that's true. But, Father, this sin in particular brings so much shame and so much isolation and so much anxiety into our lives. I pray that if nothing else this morning, that we would look for honest relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ so we can talk to you about these things. We can offer help and, and get help in exchange. Lord, I thank you that you were loving enough to point out the fact that we, if we're not careful, can just be obsessed with ourselves. So Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us a little bit more today to die to that and live to in and through and by the love that you have given in your very death on the cross and change our hearts that we would long to love you and love one another above any other temptation that comes our way. We pray in Christ's name, amen.